Hello, and welcome to Peter's podcast, where we talk about real yoga, actual happiness, and deep living. Thanks for joining me. Today I talked to my wife and Yogi Raj of Ishta Yoga, Wendy Newton, about her new book that she wrote with Alan Finger, Tantra of the Yoga Sutras. I'm very excited to have this book finally in our hands. And Wendy shares uh, some information about the book and about how you can get it and about what's in it. So I hope you enjoy. Here we go. Hi, Wendy. Hi, Peter. How are you? I'm I'm okay. Yeah. I see you holding a new book. Yeah, I wish I could hold it up for people to see because it's yeah. very exciting. Yeah, the Tantra of the Yoga Sutras. Yes, sir. Tantra sorry. of the Yoga Sutras by Alan Finger with Wendy Newton. Essential wisdom for living with awareness and grace. Yeah, this book has been. Uh, your project for a handful of years now. Forever. Yeah. And here we have a, an author pre-copy yep. that we received this week. And it's going to be available in December, but it's already available for pre-order wherever books are sold. Yeah. You can get it on any of those outlets that you already know about. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to uh, yeah. your website where they can easily get to those outlets. Great. Yeah. I it's a it's a beautiful little book to have in your hands actually. I'm looking at it right now. It's the colors are beautiful. The yantra on the cover is beautifully done and designed and the wisdom inside of it is Yeah. I, I just reread it. It's pretty it. to look at before it's, you even get to exactly, the Exactly. It just inside. feels good in your hands. Just like having it around. Sort of like uh what's that book by uh by Wallace? That nobody can get through. Oh, um, yeah. In, infinite jest. Infinite jest. You, you just, just want to have it around. one around on your bookshelf. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You just if you put this in your backpack in the morning, <laughs> then you just carry it around. You never even have to read it. It just goes in. Yeah. By osmosis. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> if only. Well, actually, don't poo-poo that method. Yeah. yeah. I've seen it work. Yeah. Only in some instances, though. Yeah. Should Can we... I just say one thing before we launch oh, in? Course. I feel like uh, I want to do a little prompt, like a little uh, letting people know. Um, so we got the author copies in the mail the other day, and it's available for pre-order, but it we are going to do a launch at Ishta, and I thought I would just plug this at the very beginning in case you tune out later. Um, we're going to have a launch at Ishta on December 13th, um, where we'll Alan and I will do a little... Um, a little teaching around it, introduce it, and do a book signing. So um, copies will be available to purchase there for our signatures. And um, we'll be announcing at that time um, trainings that we're going to, that we're, that are in development around this book for people who want to dive a little bit deeper um, into the book. Fantastic. What's the date of that? December 13th in the evening, and it will be in conjunction with the Ishta. Uh, community event. Yeah, awesome. I'm so glad you brought that up. 
Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. I just thought, you know, put it at the beginning. I'm I'm learning how to how to do that marketing Sometimes thing. You have to do that marketing thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice when the marketing is a way of just informing. Exactly. Yeah. So we had the idea to have this conversation a little while ago um, when I picked up the Hatha Yoga Pradipika from the Bihar school. And I was re- reading the introduction. Every now and then it's, it's nice to go back to texts that you've read before, case in point, the Yoga Sutras. But, <laughs> you know, I picked up the Pradipika. And um, in reading the intro... There was this description of why Hatha Yoga. Oh, yeah, now I remember. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Why Hatha Yoga. Mm. And that the the Vedanta school had very much a sense of ritual and prescription and ultimately meditation. And that it was very difficult for people to actually achieve any of that. So the 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 founders of the Hatha Yoga kind of practice decided that it was fruitful to work from the body side of things. Um, but what what piqued our hairs on the back of our neck as we read further into this was this notion that you should first perfect the body or deal with the body so that then you can deal with the breath so that then you might have a chance to work with calming the mind. Otherwise, you're always working on on this mind that's, as Arjuna says in the Bhagavad Gita, it's crazy like the wind. You can't tame it. Um, And that, that created quite a stir in our living room. Um, as you said, that uh, you have been having to address that. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like I have um, had a, a kind of an ongoing dialogue with that concept in the, that I've heard coming down the pike from various different schools and various different people whom I really respect and have learned from. Um, was very prevalent in the Iyengar school. In a lot of schools. You know, the way that it got taught here, I think, was like, look, all these Westerners can't sit for meditation and they just can't sit for pranayama, which, you know, at the time that it was coming to the West, I'm going to say, like, any time between the 40s and the 70s, um, you know, that I think a lot of the teachers coming from India found that there was just a very different population. And so in various ways, it got filtered that way, like start, meet them where they are, start with us and I get them to balance their body and then go in this very kind of, um, you know, kind of linear way, maybe getting them back towards meditation. And I feel like everything is kind of goes on a pendulum and at the time, I don't think that they were wrong, mm. but being a, such a materialistic and body-based culture, um, like the rest of yoga, over time kind of got lost as a lot of schools just picked up asana. I mean, yoga itself 
you know, like the way that we teach yoga, it's so embedded in our understanding is that you go to a studio and you put your mat down and you do asana, like as if that were the main way. And the in over time, the rest of it was lost to our general idea of yoga to the point where now it's pretty much like, uh, you know, you have to spend a half an hour, the dog is dreaming. You have to spend a half an hour explaining to somebody what you mean if you want to talk about the eight limbs. So that's that's kind of where I go. And I, my thought all along, since I started working on this book, and probably well before actually, my thought is that, you know, we got to kind of go back the other direction with the pendulum and you have to start putting the asana piece back into context of the whole yoga Right. Well, and and also we've n- noticed through the experience of teaching that people get better and better at the things that they're practicing. So even if it's hard to sit and do meditation on day one, if you practice it a little every day or you practice it mm-hmm. in a regular, consistent way, it becomes possible. Yeah. I think that's really true. And I think that putting the putting yoga back in its concept redefines what meditation is because really the the main thing that i hear from students is an anxiety around having to quote unquote let go of thinking or quote unquote like stop the thoughts stop the chatter of the mind right and if you define it as stopping the chatter of the mind which is very very active in how we formulate that idea it's intimidating right and unless you can sort of back up and look at what's really happening and sort of understand that you can that that all of those things are practice rather than um absolute truths or absolute moral or ethical rules that you have to master mm-hmm. right even if you look at asana people think you have to master trikonasana but right. it's not that way right it's a it's there for your practice. The same with any of the meditation techniques. You you don't, you know, mastery comes. It's not for you to do mastery. Mm. And that's actually one of the main things that we learn in the Yoga Sutras, just from looking at how it's formula, formulated, how, the, how that wisdom teaching of yoga is formulated, that it talks about the difference between doing actions that lead us to an experience of samadhi and those things which we can't do actions around that are the flowering or the outcome or the blossoming of those actions. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's just a basic cultural thing that we don't, we only think about doing something and getting a result. You know, it's kind of like baked into our Western mind. Right. And the idea of, you know, that, the universe, you know, you you don't make the flower grow, you just plant the seed. Yeah. And then the flower grows because there's something in the energy of the universe that makes that happen. Mm-hmm. Like, we just don't think about that part as much as we think about the active part. Right. Right. What can we do? Yeah. Not just setting up this condition so that the universe can just unfold. Exactly. Which is a nice description or maybe interpretation i'm interested to know how you interpreted it in your book but the three parts of yoga and practice the one is 
that letting go to Ishvara, mm-hmm. the the um, Ishvara Pranidhana. Yeah, I always think of Ishvara as kind of the the laws of the universe or the way the universe works. Yeah. Yeah, we do. We talk about we. There's a section in the beginning of the book that is called "Making the Language and Content Context of the Yoga Sutras Accessible." Like we've really tried to make it accessible by looking at what we're really talking about in a simple way, like not in a very complex way, but by things like Ishvara terms that are used in the Yoga Sutras, but kind of putting it into context of especially Ishtatantra language. Mm -hmm. Explaining what that actually is. And like kind of just pointing at it Mm -hmm. and giving a little bit of a map right up at the beginning or like several different ways that you can kind of like orient yourself towards where you are in the book. And, um, you know, we've tried to keep it really simple, but focus on some of the, you know, we've used this sort of tantric and Vedantic language that, that Ishta kind of combines a little bit. Um, and we've tried to educate the, towards those terms by defining them simply and then using them throughout, right? So we, we tried to really translate them consistently and to also intersperse the, the Sanskrit terms with the, with the translation terms that we came up with as the ones to use. Mm-hmm. So that in, with, by looking at context and by just kind of osmosis, people might be able to understand that Sanskrit has those, those terms in Sanskrit point to something that's very intelligible in the language of Sanskrit that might be very misleading or sort of off, like in the who knows where English gets us to in terms of our our preconceived notions right if you use like the common definition of the english word god for instance the lord yeah like there's a lot of translation that was coming from religious traditions right that um we really moved away from yeah um for for anybody who's not familiar with it or hasn't had um a session with you in a teacher training on the yoga sutras what is the uh, elevator pitch for the book? And I'll, I'll let you have like the uh, Rockefeller Center elevator length. <laughs> I get you know. to go up to the 56th yeah, floor. Yeah, it's like a, long, a longer elevator pitch of what is the Yoga Sutras? Um, I'll say that um, in this translation, in, this, in Alan's way of seeing the, the Yoga Sutras, it is uh, a work that was written down around the third or fourth century of the common era um, by a, a, a person or persons called Patanjali. Um, and it kind of condenses or um, brings together and writes down in one place the, um, the, the basic um, aphorisms or the basic kind of um, wisdom of yoga in a very simple format, right? It's not um, narrative in any way. It's more like, you know, um, using sort of dense poetic, I consider it poetic language to bring together all of the, the wisdom that was being practiced at the time and had been being practiced for many 
potentially thousands of years. Um, and at this time when things were getting written down, it was written down in a type of structure that was prevalent in that day. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was in Alan's view, um, like a primer right. on the practice of yoga writ large. And it would have been taught from yoga teacher to yoga student. And then over, over many, you know, centuries and actually millennia, it got interpreted in many, you know, in each generation in different ways. So uh, this, this interpretation kind of like Alan sees himself as a practitioner looking at this work as a practitioner rather than as a scholar and trying to understand like Tantra master to Tantra master, what Patanjali was actually saying and what is um, encoded in that book. And and that's kind of where I come in. Like I really was um, very aware of the, the wisdom encoded in the language of the book, in the way that the book is structured and laid out and the way that it's revealed. Um, and I, I, I find it to be a really beautiful um, unfolding of the, of the knowledge and wisdom that, is contained in yoga. Well, yeah, and I think that one of the things you said is so key that there's a description of the practice and the um, the way that you um, the way that it's described is in this succinct fashion, and it was taught by a teacher to a student. Orally. And so there was always the need to elaborate on what was being said, almost like bullet points. If you go to a conference, you have these bullet points up on the screen and the the speaker explains what they are. Exactly. And so these sutras, that's the reason that all of the sutras copies have interpretation with either each sutra or each group. There's another really important point there, which I think people miss, which is, and it's real, I, I don't, I actually haven't been able to find this in other, you know, works that um, the oral tradition was from teacher to student. So there was a certain amount of knowledge and information, just basic, inform, like basic knowledge of yoga that was assumed on the part of the listener, mm-hmm. of the receiver of the of the oral someone who tradition, was already practicing a yogi, mm-hmm. right? So one of the things that we've really tried to do, and we reference it outright in the very beginning, is to kind of group the group the um, the the sutras together in such a way that we've provided a little bit of that background for the modern reader, the contemporary reader. And I think that really helps. Like we've given several ways for people to kind of go in with a map Mm -hmm. because a lot of times what happens is it's either chanted and thought of as like, you're just going to get this wisdom vibrationally um, or it's kind of like read one sutra at a time. And then people like throw all their intellectual power at trying to like uncover this one sutra. And it's kind of like a koan which isn't a, a wrong or bad way. It's just both of those ways of accessing the, the, the intelligence of this work um, kind of leave out the, the general picture of what one would know 
listening to this, you know, being recited and how that would be conveyed. And one of the things that I say a lot in my when I teach it is, you know, it's really hard for us to understand that this was not like that we have a very different way of understanding the transmission of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Like we think of it as like when when we've written something down, it's words that refer to something else. Like they point to a concept and then you're supposed to get that concept intellectually. Mm-hmm. Whereas it really appears to me that this work is much more geared towards like this, these words and the meaning and the the words themselves convey the actual teachings, right? They are the yoga. Mm-hmm. And the, the speaking and receiving of this wisdom orally is the is yoga happening rather than about yoga, right? So we're not we're trying we're not trying to have an intellectual understanding about something else. We're trying to have an experience through the the oral interaction. Mm. A transmission of Shakti happens through the speaking and receiving of this mm-hmm. of these words, mm-hmm. and that I find to be I, I could te- I feel like I could teach a whole day just on that, mm-hmm. and I expect because you it, will <laughs> because it's 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 hard to it's you know you it's hard to hear that right right. Please support Peter's podcast on Patreon. Right now I'm wearing a pair of socks that Misa knitted for me during the teacher training in Finland. And that's a fantastic way to support me through this cold autumn day. But you can support Peter's podcast without even picking up a knitting needle by going to patreon.com and subscribing for any amount that makes sense to you. I like to think of it as, what's it comparable to? They often do this when you're on a public radio fundraiser. You know, is it worth a cup of coffee? Is it worth what you throw to the guy on the subway who's playing some nice music? So you can choose whatever you want. But I've added two special categories of uh, support that are all about access. Access to me. So that you could, for one level of support, have access to me via email once a month. I'll check in, you can check in, we can have a little chat on on our respective emails, and you can get uh, some instruction, you can get some practice, you can even just say, hey, this is what's going on, what do you think? So I hope you'll go check out patreon.com slash peterspodcast with no punctuation and uh, see what you think. Thanks a lot. Here's the rest of the interview with Wendy. One of the things that I've heard you say in all of the classes that I've uh, been uh, at in various teacher trainings or various workshops is you say that the Yoga Sutras is a book about samadhi Mm -hmm. and that all of the lines of the book should be read remembering that that's the purpose of the book so that whenever it starts to sound like this is how you should lead life because that makes you a good person or something like that, Mm -hmm. you always have to come back to this notion that, wait a minute, the reason we're saying this right now is because it 
helps you to reach samadhi. Mm-hmm. Um, and for anybody who's not so familiar with this word samadhi, do you want to define that? Oy. <laughs> um I think there's this book that's all about it. There's a it. book here, and it's really well defined in this book. It's called The Tantra of the Yoga Sutras. Rather than just kind of give a, a, a new definition every time, I think I'll just quote from the book itself, from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Excellent. Um, so this is a bit a longish quote, but I think it 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 uh, it says it in a nice in a nice way. From the perspective of the limited mind, samadhi seems like a goal in the future that we will someday arrive at or not. We may succeed at it or we may fail. But if through the process of yogic evolution and growth, we can move toward the experience of samadhi, that experience itself may show us a very different perspective. Because samadhi is beyond time, thought, and our individual attachment to outcomes, It allows us to regain the big picture that is beyond the reaches of the linear mind. In samadhi, we start to understand that there is no out there, and that experience changes our outlook as it infuses back into how our mind relates to our experiences in life. So I feel like that is less of a definition than a a kind of a description. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really nice to talk about samadhi in that way because it really is the experience of universal intelligence, and one doesn't have the experience of universal intelligence from the mind, mm-hmm. from the limited mind. It's just it's kind of like a, an impossibility. Right. And so to try and contemplate or describe it from the perspective of the limited mind, words just fail. Right. And we can get very easily lost in the ideas about it rather right. than in the experience of it. Could um, could it be useful? Again, I'm just thinking about people who who just don't have a a way of referencing this at all. Like they, mm-hmm. they've never they stumbled upon my yoga mm-hmm. podcast, thinking um, it was a cooking show or something. Mm. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But um, that's funny. But this idea of like in the in the eight limbs, the the eight limbs of yoga, which is part of the yoga sutras, there's this description of the mind going through various, uh, you could call them states, I guess, states of mind. Like one is just normal outward focus. One is pulling inward. Then there's concentration on one thing. And then yeah. there's an effortless concentration. And then there's a f- another state of mind that is this one that you... Uh, read well samadhi of. is the eighth limb yeah. of yoga yeah and that's why i always i and the, when i ever teach this i always say you know this is a book about samadhi because it's really easy to forget that and there's no definition of what that means but yes there's a progression towards how we move past identifying with the the limited mind which sees things in linear fashion um, but I honestly feel like you can't, I, I couldn't talk to somebody on the radio that came in for a cooking show and start there. Yeah, I'd really have to like kind of take their hand and meet them and be like, don't, you know, don't think about Samadhi. 
like it makes me think about Mark Whitwell in the early days of our of our training mm-hmm. when he would come in and be like, "No samadhis in this class. Like, mm-hmm. don't think about samadhi. No, nobody's having samadhi in my class." I don't really agree with. I don't like wouldn't teach that way. Like mm-hmm. because I think I'm teaching from about a book that's about samadhi. So I'm not going to say don't don't you know throw think the baby out that. with the bathwater. Right. However, I understand his point, which is that it's very, very easy, and it's been like the pitfall of all yoga practice throughout the centuries, to get focused and fixated on trying to understand samadhi from the point of view of the mind. It, the, the whole book starts out with saying, hey, look, samadhi is this experience of being in the now, and that is the experience of yoga. And the reason that we don't experience that is because the mind tends to identify with the thoughts that it has, the images that it creates as like deep-seated belief patterns, not just little thoughts that you're having, but all of the thoughts, all of the emotions, all of the way of experiencing the world. So, I mean, that's like a huge mouthful for somebody. Like, I'm not going to, you know what I mean? Like the first four sutras just toss the uninitiated person like into the deep end of the pool yeah what i've always found really intriguing about that is that it sets up this statement that hey you don't know who you are because you're so identified with your thoughts but having this experience of yoga will let you see who you are so i'm gonna i'm gonna change the audience for you right now from Mm -hmm. the cooking show and say (laughs) okay so then guess what everybody this is not a cooking show you say you got intrigued yes right by what I just said. Mm-hmm. So then what is it that the third and fourth padas mm. of this book talk about? Because so many of the translations give short shrift to those two chapters. Yes. Uh, and they're literally half of the book. Yes, they are half of the book, fully half of the book. And they're about that when you achieve this yeah. regular occurrence of samadhi. Well, to put it in a nutshell, here's how I would say it. Um, the first two books are, are more accessible because they talk about what is samadhi, right? Like just big picture, what are we talking about? And they talk about what we can do to have this experience of samadhi. And because I sort of already addressed it at the beginning, the Western mind likes to have something to do. It feels concrete to us. Um, most interpretations and translations really focus on that. The third pada talks about what actually happens in us once we start to have the experience of samadhi. Once we start to have these experiences where we're moving past the identifications of the mind. And it's it's described as a state of mind, a state of being, a state of awareness that changes not just it's not like a conceptual thing. It actually changes how we relate to the mind and the world that we construct via the mind, right? So the the third pada, vibhuti pada, is kind of like what flows back to us from that state of samadhi coming back into our life. And some of that is about the the psychic changes that are called the 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 cities right and every all the yogis get very excited when we talk about cities or they it's very polarizing you know it's like S- that stuff S-I-D-D-H-I-S. cities yes not yeah. like city new york city yeah. but city 
And it's a little bit of a polarizing um, concept for people. But essentially, that third pada talks about what happens in our, our life, like how it comes back through us and changes us. Right. And if you want, I'm not going to get technical here. Right. You know, it's, it's, it talks about how do we go, th- you know, via focusing our mind and letting ourselves move into effortless focus. How do we come back from this experience of transcendence, tra- of transcending the mind back into a place where we're observing the world without getting attached to what the mind is thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So it really changes us. And that has this eff- effect of changing how we move around in our life, how we see out there and in here, like how we see how we as individual mind constructs, yeah, I don't know how to say it, uh, relate to the universal uh, kind of, I don't know, admixture yeah. of everything that's out there. And this can sound kind of highfalutin and like something yeah, that's unattainable. But I have to say that through my own experiences with practice, I do feel different about the world walking through it. I'd like to, I'd, yeah, I'd like to kind of backtrack. Like as soon as, you know, you start to talk about the third and fourth pada, if you haven't had the experience it feels like very, it, it can feel a little bit um, like you have to have trust and faith and belief that it will happen, right? But I like to try and kind of chunk it down for people and say like, okay, you've been practicing yoga or you could conceive of practicing yoga and you could imagine that because of your practice, you start to feel differently uh, like, let's start with the body, right? You come in with aches and pains and you do, you know, warrior two and all the standing poses. And then after a month or two, you realize that you're walking around, your hips feel more open and it feels better to get up in the morning and go out and do your thing. That is itself, right? The practice is the doing of the, of the standing hip openers. But the city is the feeling opening open in the hips and moving around with ease and grace in your hips right yeah you can't equate the two right and if you only focus on doing the poses then sometimes you miss the experience yeah and if you focus too much on trying to get the experience you may be putting too much effort into the practice itself and so it's kind of really important in this translation of the book or this interpretation of the book that we make an effort to really look at what are the changes that we go through? How does this work, right? How important is it that we start to see that this is a cycle, and that this is kind of embedded in the wisdom of yoga, right? It's not just something that like came up, you know, in 20th century. This is like part of how yoga, you can't, you can't get to the 20th century and be like, well, we're just only going to do asana right. and call it yoga. Right. So, well, I, although that's 
largely what has happened. So that's that's kind of um, you know it's a it's a really good question. What's what happens in the third and fourth padas? And I think a lot of times um, you know the the commentary over the centuries. You know, like the, all the commentary in those padas becomes very convoluted. And I think it was a little bit easier, like, to was one of the places where it became easier to just kind of go for it and make uh, an interpretation based on experience of yoga rather than trying to sort through the previous commentaries. Mm -hmm. Because that's where it gets very esoteric, and I think a lot of times people just go off the rails. Mm -hmm. And just say, oh, you know what, that's not relevant for today. Right. But we thought that it was very relevant forever, for all all time. Right. I mean, I think that you know, from from looking from the outside on, on this whole process, that the third and fourth padas, it's sort of like the lost yoga sutras that no one talks about. Yeah. And you guys have taken it and described how you do this practice, not so you become so esoteric that there's nothing that anyone can grasp but rather that it is in a tantra practice in other words where you're using this part of life of experiencing and the senses as being just as valid a part of what is as samadhi the is the getting to yeah the coming back from samadhi is yeah and, and then then you are literally living life in a sort of a different place in, in your evolution. Like you feel you've grown. Yeah. I think that it's embedded in the tantric concept of, of practice, of life and practice, right? That um, you do a practice that moves you beyond your limited conception of whatever it is and then you have this experience of liberation you have this larger perspective experience and in tantra then what happens is you know it's spoken of often as weaving it back in to your life right so we use life as a way to experience what's beyond and then we having that experience weave that experience back into our living and that is like such an essential concept in in tantra as a practice as a way generally speaking of practicing and what was so exciting for me actually what kept me very much in the project was that this is embedded in this ancient wisdom like this this is this is what the book how the book is constructed right it's not that's it's you know the the tantra didn't just come about later right it was always embedded in the ancient wisdom and it was just interpreted differently or seen or not seen over right. the ages right. by different schools and practitioners and so for me it's very exciting it's almost like a reclaiming right. of the original uh material precisely which is why i called it the lost books of the, the lost sutras, books you know? yeah and and it doesn't to me i mean okay granted i spent five years <laughs> working on it and getting I, I feel like Alan had to sort of train me up to get for us to be able to get to the conversation where I could write it down um, but 
that being what it is, I think it's it's just naturally very exciting to me to be able to uh, bring that forward, and that feels like a real contribution to yeah. the, the understanding of this wisdom. Yeah, yeah, it's it's um, it it's it's kind of a reclaiming of the wisdom in a way that I think is very accessible to people, and it it doesn't have to be you know, this esoteric thing that nobody can understand. Exactly. It's, you know, just part of the yoga. And I think, you know, one of the things um, that, like it looks like when you look at the yoga world, you know, you pick up a magazine and it like highlights a handful of people or something like that, or it shows you how to do trikonasana or something like that. One of the things that is very special and and you know i considered it a karmic gift in in my own life is that we've come upon um a teacher for whom this practice of meditation isn't some kind of like weird holy thing this is about like how how do you get along in the world and deal with how challenging the world is and feel inspired and feel like it's possible and feel like, wait, I can sort out what's important and what's not important in this situation and take the best step. And, you know, and, and recognizing that that is what yoga is about. It sounds to me, you know, Alan saw this in the sutras from the time he was quite young and, and, found you to finally make it all come out in this way that it's easier to share. But we share this in class all the time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really special. Sometimes, you know, especially in the latest phases of the edits and, you know, just sort of putting things, the final finishing touches on things and getting it to the publisher and that every once in a while we, we would sit down and be like, this is really good. (laughs) (laughs) Like this, we were proud of ourselves for, Mm -hmm. for seeing it through to completion because it wasn't an easy, you know, it took a lot of perseverance, I think, to just kind of push through the parts where it felt like insurmountable, Mm -hmm. you know, and it ends up being a very small, um, you know, I'm not going to say it's easy, but it's accessible. It's like a, a, a little yellow book, and it doesn't have endless, you know, commentaries. It just has kind of a map of how to approach it and a couple of, um, you know, f- you know, filling in information for yogis. Yeah, like sidebars. Like sidebars and a little bit of explanation, like, oh, you know, this is where we are. Just orientation to the text. Right. And... Um, and so it ends up being this this very eloquent little thing that um, I really hope that it will have um, application for sure in the Ishta school, you know, because that's been something that Al really wants to has wanted to teach from. The sutras are something that Al has wanted to teach from forever and has had um, just challenges with the translations that are available, and. Um, and also to the yoga world at large, like people from any school, you know, can can have an experience of the sutras that's really present and contemporary. And um, 
And also to, you know, people just coming to yoga from other types of practices or from philosophy or from, you know, like even, I don't know, Buddhism or, you know what I mean? I think it can help people to flesh out the idea of where, where does this come from in the world and how does this, what does this look like um, to, in, to our experience, you know? Um, and actually like shameless plug, I am very happy to make myself available out there in the yoga world to teach this. Should anybody be interested in, in, uh, having a deeper exploration beyond just reading the book. Right. Via workshop or training. Via workshops or trainings. Absolutely. All of, all of those of you who have yoga studios. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody's mowing our lawn or something. It's leaf. It's the leaf oh. people, the oh, leaf okay. blower people. Wow. I know. Well, with so much uh, important stuff to talk about, I think leaf blowing is just going to have to be like the period at the end of we the sentence. We can see it as a metaphor. You'll clear the leaves of your mind if you read this book. There you go. And once again, what is the date of this um so the publication date mm-hmm. is December 11th, mm-hmm. and the pre- it's available for pre-order now mm-hmm. on any of the, the online outlets. Mm-hmm. And uh, the book launch at Ishta Yoga Studio on 11th Street in Manhattan is on December 13th in the evening as part of that evening's um, community event at Ishta. Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks for sharing... Uh this cool news with us, when? Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, and we'll uh, we'll talk again soon. Yeah. Okay. Namaste. Namaste. That's our episode for today. Thanks for joining us in our living room in Crown Heights, where we're putting up with all kinds of uh, outdoor noise. I guess it's cool outside, and like my doggy gets frisky, so is everybody doing their yard work. Um, But it's been really great to talk to Wendy about her new project. I hope you'll check it out. There's a link in the show notes to Ishta so you can go to the book launch if you happen to be in New York City or to Wendy's website if you're looking for a place to pick up a copy of this book in pre-order. And uh, I look forward to hearing from you via patreon.com or any other way. You can always email me at peterspodcast108 at gmail.com. And I look forward to talking to you next week. Have a wonderful one. Namaste. Namaste.